Section thirty three of the South Pole. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine Blashford. The South Pole by Roald Amundsen. Translation by A. G. Carter. Section thirty three, volume two, chapter sixteen. The voyage of the Fram from Norway to the Barrier and off the Barrier by First Lieutenant Thorvald Nilsson. From Norway to the Barrier. After the Fram had undergone extensive repairs in Horton Dockyard, and had loaded provisions and equipment in Christiania, we left the latter port on June 7, 1910. According to the plan, we were first to make an oceanographical cruise of about two months in the North Atlantic, and then to return to Norway, where the Fram was to be docked and the remaining outfit and dogs taken on board. This oceanographical cruise was in many respects successful. In the first place, we gained familiarity with the vessel and got everything shipshape for the long voyage to come. But the best of all was that we acquired valuable experience of our auxiliary engine. This is a 180 HP diesel motor, constructed for solar oil, of which we were taking about 90,000 litres, about 19,800 gallons. In this connection, it may be mentioned that we consumed about 500 litres, about 110 gallons a day, and that the Fram's radius of action was thus about six months. For the first day or two the engine went well enough, but after that it went slower and slower, and finally stopped of its own accord. After this it was known as the whooping cough. This happened several times in the course of the trip. The piston rods had constantly to be taken out and cleared of a thick black deposit. As possibly our whole South Polar expedition would depend on the motor doing its work properly, the result of this was that the projected cruise was cut short, and after a lapse of three weeks our course was set for Bergen, where we changed the oil for refined paraffin, and at the same time had the motor thoroughly overhauled. Since then there has never been anything wrong with the engine. From Bergen we went to Christiansand, where the Fram was docked, and as already mentioned, the remaining outfit, with the dogs and dog food, was taken on board. The number of living creatures on board when we left Norway was 19 men, 97 dogs, 4 pigs, 6 carrier pigeons and 1 canary. At last we were ready to leave Christiansand on Thursday, August the 9th, 1910, and at 9 o'clock that evening the anchor was got up and the motor started. After the busy time we had had, no doubt we were all glad to get off. As our departure had not been made public, only the pilot and a few acquaintances accompanied us a little way out. It was glorious weather, and everyone stayed on deck till far into the light night, watching the land slowly disappear. All the ninety-seven dogs were chained round the deck, on which we also had coal, oil, timber, and other things, so that there was not much room to move about. The rest of the vessel was absolutely full. To take an example, in the fore saloon we had placed forty-three sledging cases, which were filled with books, Christmas presents, underclothing, and the like. In addition to these, one hundred complete sets of dog harnesses, all our ski, ski poles, snowshoes, etc. Smaller articles were stowed in the cabins, and every man had something. When I complained, as happened pretty often, that I could not imagine where this or that was to be put, the chief of the expedition used generally to say, "'Oh, that's all right, you can just put it in your cabin.' Thus it was with every imaginable thing, from barrels of paraffin and newborn pups to writing materials and charts. As the story of this voyage has already been told, it may be rapidly passed over here. After much delay through headwinds in the channel, we picked up the northeast trade in about the latitude of Gibraltar, and arrived at Madeira on September the 6th. At 9pm on September the 9th, we weighed anchor for the last time and left Madeira. As soon as we were clear of the land, we got the northeast trade again, and it held more or less fresh till about latitude 11 degrees north. After our departure from Madeira, I took over the morning watch from 4 to 8 a.m. Prestrud and Geertsen divided the remainder of the 24 hours. 
In order, if possible, to get a little more way on the ship, a studding sail and a sky sail were rigged up with two awnings. It did not increase our speed very much, but no doubt it helped a little. The highest temperature we observed was 84 degrees Fahrenheit. In the trade winds we constantly saw flying fish, but as far as I know not one was ever found on deck. Those that came on board were, of course, instantly snapped up by the dogs. In about latitude 11 degrees north we lost the northeast trade, and thus came into the Belt of Calms, a belt that extends on each side of the equator between the northeast and southeast trades. Here, as a rule, one encounters violent rain squalls. To sailing ships in general, and ourselves in particular, this heavy rain is welcome, as water tanks can be filled up. Only on one day were we lucky enough to have rain, but as it was accompanied by a strong squall of wind, we did not catch all the water we wanted. All hands were on deck carrying water, some in oilskins, some in Adam's costume, the chief in a white tropical suit, and as far as I remember, clogs. As the latter were rather slippery, and the Fram suddenly gave an unexpected lurch, he was carried off his legs and left sitting on the deck, while his bucket of water poured all over him. But it was all in his country's cause, so he did not mind. We caught about three tons of water, and then had our tanks full, or about thirty tons, when the shower passed off. Later in the voyage we filled a bucket now and again, but it never amounted to much, and if we had not been as careful as we were, our water supply would hardly have lasted out. On October the 4th we crossed the equator, the southeast trade was not so fresh as we had expected, and the engine had to be kept going the whole time. At the beginning of November we came down into the west wind belt, or the Roaring Forties, as they are called, and from that time we ran down our easting at a great rate. We were very lucky there, and had strong fair winds for nearly seven weeks at a stretch. In the heavy sea we found out what it was to sail in the Fram, she rolls incessantly, and there is never a moment's rest. The dogs were thrown backwards and forwards over the deck, and when one of them rolled into another, it was taken as a personal insult, and a fight followed at once. But for all that, the Fram is a first-rate sea-boat, and hardly ever ships any water. If this had been otherwise, the dogs would have been far worse off than they were. The weather in the foggy fifties varied between gales, calms, fogs, snowstorms, and other delights. As a rule, the engine was now kept constantly ready, in case of our being so unlucky as to come too near an iceberg. Fortunately, however, we did not meet any of these until early on the morning of January the 1st, 1911, when we saw some typical Antarctic bergs, that is to say, entirely tabular. Our latitude was then a little over 60 degrees south, and we were not far off the pack. On the 1st and 2nd, we sailed southward without seeing anything but scattered bergs and a constantly increasing number of lumps of ice, which showed us we were getting near. By 10 p.m. on the 2nd, we came into slack drift ice, the weather was foggy, and we therefore kept going as near as might be on the course to the Bay of Wales, which was destined to be our base. A good many seals were lying on the ice floes, and as we went forward, we shot some. As soon as the first seal was brought on board, all our dogs had their first meat meal since Madeira. They were given as much as they wanted, and ate as much as they could. We too had our share of the seal, and from this time forward we had fresh seal steak for breakfast at least every day. It tasted excellent to us, who for nearly half a year had been living on nothing but tinned meat. With the steak wortle berries were always served, which of course helped to make it appreciated. The biggest seal we got in the pack ice was about twelve feet long, and weighed nearly half a ton. A few penguins were also shot, mostly Adelie penguins. These are extraordinarily amusing, and as inquisitive as an animal can be. When any of them saw us, they at once came nearer to get a better view of the unbidden guests. If they became too impertinent, we did not hesitate to take them, for their flesh, especially the liver, was excellent. The albatrosses, which had followed us through the whole of the west wind belt, had now departed, and in their place came the beautiful snowy petrels and Antarctic petrels. We had more or less fog all through the pack ice. Only on the night of the 5th did we have sun and fine weather, when we saw the midnight sun for the first time. 
A more beautiful morning it would be difficult to imagine, radiantly clear, with thick ice everywhere, as far as the eye could see. The lanes of water between the flows gleamed in the sun, and the ice crystals glittered like thousands of diamonds. It was a pure delight to go on deck and drink in the fresh air. One felt altogether a new man. I believe everyone on board found this passage through the pack the most interesting part of the whole voyage, and of course it all had the charm of novelty. Those who had not been in the ice before, myself among them, and who were hunting for the first time, ran about after seals and penguins, and amused themselves like children. At 10 p.m. on the 6th we were already out of the ice after a passage of exactly four days. We had been extremely lucky, and the Fram went very easily through the ice. After coming out of the pack, our course was continued through the open Ross Sea to the Bay of Wales, which from the previous description was to be found in about longitude 164 degrees west. On the afternoon of the 11th we had strong ice blink ahead, by which is meant the luminous stripe that is seen above a considerable accumulation of ice. The nearest thing one can compare it to is the glare that is always seen over a great city on approaching it at night. We knew at once that this was the glare of the mighty Ross Barrier, named after Sir James Clark Ross, who first saw it in 1841. The barrier is a wall of ice several hundred miles long and about a hundred feet high, which forms the southern boundary of Ross Sea. We were, of course, very intent upon seeing what it looked like, but to me it did not appear so imposing as I had imagined it. Possibly this was because I had become familiar with it, in a way, from the many descriptions of it. From these descriptions we had expected to find a comparatively narrow opening into Balloon Bight, as shown in the photographs we had before us. But as we went along the barrier, on the 12th, we could find no opening. In longitude 164 degrees west, on the other hand, there was a great break in the wall forming a cape, West Cape. From here to the other side of the barrier was about eight geographical miles, and southward, as far as we could see, lay loose bay ice. We held on to the east outside this drift ice and along the eastern barrier till past midnight, but as balloon bight was not to be found, we returned to the above-mentioned break or cape, where we lay during the whole forenoon of the 13th, as the ice was too thick to allow us to make any progress. After midday, however, the ice loosened and began to drift out. At the same time we went in, and having gone as far as possible, the Fram was moored to the fast ice foot on the western side of the great bay we had entered. It proved that Balloon Bight and another bight had merged to form a great bay, exactly as described by Sir Ernest Shackleton, and named by him the Bay of Wales. After mooring here, the chief and one or two others went on a reconnoitring tour, but it began to snow pretty thickly, and as far as I am aware nothing was accomplished beyond seeing that the barrier at the southernmost end of the bay sloped evenly down to the sea ice, but between the latter and the slope there was open water, so that they could not go any further. We lay all night drifting in the ice, which was constantly breaking up, and during this time several seals and penguins were shot. Towards morning, on the 14th, it became quite clear, and we had a splendid view of the surroundings. Right over on the eastern side of the bay it looked as if there was more open water. We therefore went along the fast ice foot and moored off the eastern barrier at about three in the afternoon. The cape in the barrier under which we lay was given the name of Man's Head on account of its resemblance to a human profile. All the time we were going along the ice we were shooting seals, so that on arrival at our final moorings we already had a good supply of meat. For my part I was rather unlucky on one of these hunts. Four seals were lying on the ice foot, and I jumped down with rifle and five cartridges. To take any cartridges in reserve did not occur to me, as of course I regarded myself as a mighty hunter, and thought that one shot per seal was quite enough. The three first died without a groan, but the fourth took the alarm and made off as fast as it could. I fired my fourth cartridge, but it did not hit as it ought to have done, and the seal was in full flight, leaving a streak of blood behind it. I was not anxious to let a wounded seal go, and as I had only one cartridge left, and the seal had its tail turned towards me, I wanted to come to close quarters to make sure of it. I therefore ran as hard as I could, but the seal was quicker, and it determined the range. 
After running halfway to the South Pole, I summoned my remaining strength and fired the last shot. Whether the bullet went above or below, I have no idea. All I know is that on arriving on board, I was met by scornful smiles and had to stand a good deal of chaff. As already mentioned, we left Norway on August the ninth, 1910, and arrived at our final moorings on January the 14th, 1911, in the course of which time we had only called at Madeira. The barrier is 16,000 geographical miles from Norway, a distance which we took five months to cover. From Madeira we had had 127 days in open sea, and therewith the first part of the voyage was brought to an end. Off the Barrier as soon as we had moored, the chief, Prestrud, Johansen and I went up on to the barrier on a tour of reconnaissance. The ascent from the sea ice to the barrier was fine, a perfectly even slope. When no more than a mile from the ship, we found a good site for the first dog camp, and another mile to the south it was decided that the house was to stand on the slope of a hill where it would be least exposed to the strong southeasterly gales, which might be expected from previous descriptions. Up on the barrier all was absolutely still, and there was not a sign of life. Indeed, what should anything live on? This delightful ski-run was extended a little further to the south, and after a couple of hours we returned on board. Here in the meantime the slaughtering of seals had been going on, and there were plenty to be had, as several hundreds of them lay about on the ice. After the rather long sea voyage and the cramped quarters on board, I must say it was a pleasure to have firm ground under one's feet, and to be able to move about a little. The dogs evidently thought the same. When they came down onto the ice, they rolled in the snow and ran about, wild with delight. During our whole stay, a great part of the time was spent in ski runs and seal hunts, and an agreeable change it was. Sunday the 15th was spent in setting up tents at the first dog camp, and at Framheim, as the winter station was named. A team of dogs was used, and as they were unused to being driven, it is not surprising that some lay down, others fought, a few wanted to go on board, but hardly any of them appreciated the seriousness of the situation, or understood that their good time had come to an end. On Monday all the dogs were landed, and on the following day the supplies began to be put ashore. The landing of the cases was done in this way. The sea-party brought up on deck as many cases as the drivers could take in one journey. As the sledges came down to the vessel, the cases were sent down onto the ice on skids, so that it all went very rapidly. We would not put the cases out on the ice before the sledges came back, as in case the ice should break up, we should be obliged to heave them all on board again, or we might even lose them. At night no one was ever allowed to stay on the ice. Before we reached the ice, we had counted on having 50% of idle days, that is, from previous descriptions, we had reckoned on having such bad weather half the time that the Fram would be obliged to leave her moorings. In this respect, we were far luckier than we expected, and only had to put out twice. The first time was on the night of January the 25th, when we had a stiff breeze from the north with some sea, so that the vessel was bumping rather hard against the ice. Drifting flows came down upon us, and so as not to be caught by any iceberg that might suddenly come sailing in from the point of the barrier we called Man's Head, we took our moorings on board and went. When the shore party next morning came down as usual at a swinging pace, they saw to their astonishment that the Fram was gone. In the course of the day the weather became fine and we tried to go back about noon. But the bay was so full of drift ice that we could not come in to the fast ice foot. About nine in the evening we saw from the crow's nest that the ice was loosening, we made the attempt, and by midnight we were again moored. But the day was not wasted by the shore party, for on the day before, Christensen, L. Hansen and I had been out on ski and had shot forty seals, which were taken up to the station while we were away. Only once or twice more did we have to leave our berth, until on February the 7th, when almost all the ice had left the bay, we were able to moor alongside the low, fast barrier, where we lay in peace until we went for good. There was a great deal of animal life about us. A number of whales came close into the vessel, where they stayed still to look at the uninvited guests. On the ice, seals came right up to the ship, as did large and small flocks of penguins to have a look at us. These latter were altogether extraordinarily inquisitive creatures. 
Two emperor penguins often came to our last moorings to watch us laying out an ice-anchor, or hauling on a hawser, while they put their heads on one side and jabbered, and they were given the names of the harbour-master and his missus. A great number of birds, skewer-gulls, snowy petrels, and antarctic petrels, flew around the ship and gave us many a good roast ptarmigan. On the morning of February the 4th, about 1 a.m., the watchman Beck came and called me with the news that a vessel was coming in. I guessed at once, of course, that it was the Terra Nova, but I must confess that I did not feel inclined to turn out and look at her. We hoisted the colours, however. As soon as she was moored, Beck told me, some of her party went ashore, presumably to look for the house. They did not find it, though, and at 3 a.m. Beck came below again and said that now they were coming on board. So then I turned out and received them. They were Lieutenant Campbell, the leader of Captain Scott's second shore party, and Lieutenant Pennell, the commander of the Terra Nova. They naturally asked a number of questions, and evidently had some difficulty in believing that it was actually the Fram that was lying here. We had at first been taken for a whaler. They offered to take our mail to New Zealand, but we had no mail ready, and had to decline the offer with thanks. Later in the day a number of the Terra Nova's officers went to breakfast at Framheim, and the chief Prestrud and I lunched with them. At about two in the afternoon the Terra Nova sailed again. On Friday, February the 16th, a number of the shore party started on the first trip to lay down depots. We cleared up, filled our water tanks with snow, and made the ship ready for sea. We had finished this by the evening of the 14th. End of section 33